Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Slaughter Podcast will be discussing topics that some listeners may find disturbing. If you're still listening, that says more about you than it does about us. Hi guys, episode 23. I'm Emma. I'm Lucy. And we're here to do this. Let's get shit done. Um, so I'm not looking at a murderer this time. Then get out. Oh, okay. No, because we do all kinds of crime. All kinds. And whatever whatever we want. South we do world. whatever. This, yeah, we do what the hell we want. I'm looking at Ronnie Biggs. Have you heard of him? I have heard of him. The Great Train Robbery. Which I've never quite understood why it's great. I mean, I've heard of him. I know it's The Great Train Robbery. Why is it great? I don't know why it's great. Is it because he stole a lot of stuff? Is it because the train was moving and he was able to jump on while it was moving? Because I love it when people do that. I don't want to blame my own horn, but it is pretty great. <laughs> it's not that great. Was that you being Ronnie Biggs? <laughs> yeah. And so I've decided to focus it on just one of the great train robbers because otherwise I don't know where we would start. How so, many were there? A lot. I think I've got all their names, but there's quite a few of them. So Ronnie Biggs was born in Stockwell, Lambeth in London in 1929. Mine's from Lambeth. No, this is the Lambeth episode. Doing the Lambeth walk. Hey. When he was a young boy, he was evacuated in the Second World War. So he was taken to Bedfordshire and then he was taken to Cornwall to a village called Delabole. A Cornish newspaper that reported his death recently actually said... We um, miss him. Led with the fact he'd stayed there when publicising his death. I mean, they need to big it up because I've never heard of them still. Yeah. No, I know. Push it, push it more. Comments were, no loss, pity, wasted Cornish oxygen. Wasted the Cornish oxygen. Our oxygen. Dare we? I mean, they want to be their own country, but now they want their own oxygen. <laughs> like, they're going to build walls. This is where our oxygen stops. It is cream before jam. Is it? I don't know. I don't even have the cream. Cornish tea we're talking about. Yeah. Not front round No yeah. cream for me. Um, Double jam. So, and another person said, geez, a bit of a tenuous link to Cornwall there. Everything is a tenuous link to Cornwall because nothing happens there. <laughs> Pretty much. In the summer, everything's happening and it just stops. What happens there? Nothing. Nothing. Well, see Caravanning. Towns. Caravanning happens there, but it's not like an event. Jewels shops. So, not long after returning to London... Biggs' mother died of an ulcer. So he came back from being evacuated and I'm, his mother I died. I knew I was right to complain when I get one. 
Yeah. It feels like you're going to die, and now there's proof that I could. Yeah, there you go. I see you mean like a stomach ulcer, not a mouth one. If she died of a mouth ulcer, then I'm going to start being a lot more frightened. <laughs> so following this, Biggs started to get into trouble with the law for petty theft, so he sort of went off the rails, so to speak. No train, pun intended. Upon turning 18, he joined the Royal Air Force, so the RAF, or RAF, apparently. It's called by people in the know. Really? Yeah. Luke calls it the RAF because his uh, granddad was in there. I've never heard it called the RAF. I've never heard it called the RAF, apart from him. Within two years, he was in trouble with the police, despite being in the RAF, and he was dishonourably discharged and spent time in prison for stealing a car. Then he spent the next 10 years in and out of prison for theft. So, start as you mean to go on. He wasn't very good at it, really. (laughs) Considering he's going to do a great robbery, he's not starting off well. No. He met Bruce Reynolds during this time, and Bruce Reynolds was basically the brains of the great train robbery. So he orchestrated the whole thing. In 1960, Biggs married Charmaine Powell and resolved to turn his back on crime. He's going to have a new start, new beginning. Because of her magic vagina. Started a construction business, but didn't make enough to live on. So he was struggling. In 1963, he visited Reynolds and he said, can I have a loan? You're making dollar. Give me some of that. Instead of lending him the money, Reynolds basically said, no, but I've got a plan. You can be involved in it if you want to. So he was given the job for arranging for Stan Agate, who was the driver that they'd... Of the train? Of the train. Ooh. Not of the, the guy who was going to drive it from their clan, not the, not the driver who was already driving it. Um, so he was going to oversee Stan moving the train, basically. So his job on... Uh, Ronnie Biggs wasn't... Oh, they stole a train! It's a train robbery! I thought they stole stuff off a train. Like, you know, in like a Wild West movie where they jump on a train on one of those little carriages, take some suitcases and jump off again. I mean, it'll all become clear, but they borrowed the train, they stole they the stole stuff. stole an entire train? Yeah, I have no idea great. what this story was about. I told you it was great! <gasps> but that's a stupid thing to steal, because where are you going to keep it? So, after having agreed to take part in the robbery... Uh, I found out from a book called 100 Facts About Ronnie Biggs. Very specific writing there. 100 Facts. If there's one more, it's not going in. He's not even the main one and he's written 100 Facts About Him. So Biggs put a bet on the horses and he won £600, which is enough for the deposit for the house. So you didn't even need to be part of this plan at all. But he still And it sounds stupid as well. Uh, If someone said to you, yeah, we're going to steal a train, you'd be like... Okay, that's nice. And especially if you've won money, why would you risk it? I mean, he's not the brightest one. We've got this. He keeps thieving, even though it's clearly not... He doesn't have the aptitude for it. (laughs) So on the night of the robbery, um, Biggs told his wife that he was going logging with Reynolds in Wiltshire. What's logging? He's like, I'm going dogging. What? Uh, I mean logging! (laughs) What is logging? Like throwing logs? Stealing logs? Rolling logs? Tossing the caber? Logging. I, mean, I, I did a lot of research on this that didn't extend to looking up what logging was. Or like a troublesome poo. Or like that game Poo Sticks. Oh, I love Poo Sticks. Mm. Let's not explain it. No. On Wednesday 7th of August 1963, the travelling post office train... I love that. We will bring the post office to you as long as you live at a train station. Then it made its way from Glasgow to London, carrying large quantities of money. So it was about 2.5 to 3 million pounds, 
which, mm. I mean, this is the 60s, was even more. Uh, around 3am on August the 8th, the train stopped in Crewe after the signal light had been tampered with by the robbers. So they basically made it so the red stayed on. Do you know, like, when you get to the traffic lights and it doesn't change and you're like... And you're I, panicking, like... Should I go? Or, like, the weird rule in America where the lights are red, but sometimes you can drive through it. Like, yeah. what kind of rule is that? Red means stop. Unless, um, unless you want to go. Unless you want to go right. Unless, unless you feel like it's fine. On the train were Jack Mills, the driver, and David Whitby, who was the second man or the fireman. I mean, that's a confusing name for a train second man. Can I just confirm? They tampered with the signal so that the train was still so they could get on it. Is that the idea? Yeah, basically they were like, oh, well, it's red, but we can't go, so we're stuck here. Got it. They'd screwed with it and then they put a battery in so the red stayed on. So it's quite clever. He got off the train, so the... um. David Whitby got off the train to see the cables had been cut, so they'd tampered more. And on his way back to the train, he was grabbed. Then the gang, which consisted of, I'm going to tell you quite a few names here, Gordon Goody, alliteration, love it, Charlie Wilson, Buster Edwards, Bruce Reynolds, Roy James, John Daly, Roger Codry, Jimmy White, Bob Welch, Tom Wisby, Jimmy Hussey and Ronnie Biggs. How did they convince so many people that this was a good idea? 2.5 to 3 million. That'll do it. I know, but I'd be like, okay, maybe one, two people could be convinced, like, let's steal a train. But I can't even count that many people. The robbers climbed on the train and took control, but they now had to move the train. So that's why they brought Stan Agate, who was a retired train driver. Now... He couldn't do shit, to be honest. He got on there and went, yeah, this is all different. Trains have changed since I was a lad. Basically. How much can trains have changed? He couldn't move it. So Stan Agate couldn't do anything. Ronnie Biggs is only there to oversee him. So both of them were just sent to help unload the bags. So... No, we're with you. So they're unloading it, so we're not stealing the train anymore. Well, they did. They did get it moving. Um, They stopped the train at Bridgio Bridge. That can't be right. That's like some lazy bridge naming. Bridgie McBridge face. Bridgie McBridge. Bridgie O'Bridge. And ordered staff there to lie on the floor. Because um, there were a lot of staff on the train. I'm going to say there must have been people everywhere. We're at a station unloading, just swapping drivers around. There must be normal people at this station. It's the uh, middle of the night. See, this is why I shouldn't plan a train robbery. <laughs> we'll do it in the day. They then transferred the sacks of money into two Land Rovers and headed along minor roads to avoid getting seen. And then they had the police radio on as well so they could tell where the police were saying or when they'd kind of picked up on the crime. They drove to Leatherslade Farm and arrived about 4.30am and then they started unloading the bags. So they basically they'd bought this farm for the purpose of this crime. They bought a farm mo- especially a farm. for this. I mean, it's a lot of money. So they split the money and they each got £150,000. Do you think in the 60s, that's pretty minted. So that's about £2.6 million today's money each. Like, you yeah, can enough. live off that. Yeah, I could. Like, you're done You're done then. They were hoping to hide out at the farm, but because they had the police radios, but they worked But they parked a train in the driveway, so <laughs> it was kind of obvious. <laughs> So they worked out from the police radio that they were on to them and they were going to get to them sooner than they thought. So the men arranged to have friends and family to pick them up. 
say because I called their mums. Yeah. Like, um, something's happened and I'm going to need you to come and get me. That would have never worked with my parents. If ever I called them to get me, they were like, if you are old enough to get yourself there, you're old enough to get yourself home. I could be stranded in another country and they'd be like, so? <laughs> Got yourself in this mess. My, my dad would have picked us both up. He would, yeah. So, in fact, he did. <laughs> Quite several times. So they then paid one of the men, Field, to go back and burn the farm down, just to destroy all the evidence. <laughs> An entire farm! Yeah. Like, what's, that's going to draw people to the scene. If but the entire farm is on fire... But they'd all gone, apart from Field. So he was like, well, they're like, you burn it down, destroy all the evidence, we're all gone, job done. But someone bought it. That leaves a paper trail. Yeah, Even if you burn down the building. Like, yeah, but I bet this guy had like... I'm surprised we don't it. see more fires. The yeah. amount of people that are just burning everything. Burn everything! So, Field didn't do it. Basically, he just fled as well. So, the police found the hideout. And they found Big's fingerprints on a ketchup bottle. I mean, how long have you been there that you're using ketchup? How is that a necessity? And that just proves you popped around for dinner. Yeah, at any point. So three weeks later, Biggs was arrested in London. Obviously, his fingerprints were on file. He'd been in prison. I'd love it Um, if if they got him into the police station and they said, here, we've got you a snack, some chips. Now, what do you want on it? And as soon as he said ketchup, they were like, got you. (laughs) We knew it. Evidence. Ketchup or brown sauce, Biggs. Proves it. Without a doubt, you is the one. So, he was arrested in London, they got 11 other men, and they were sent to prison for the crime. So, caught loads of them. Now, Big spent 15 months at Wandsworth Prison. In July 1965, he'd planned his escape, and he put it into practice. So, he got a rope ladder, scaled the wall, he'd arranged for a removal van from someone outside to park on the other side of the wall, jumped onto the removal van, and got away. The same time, when it had went up, two other bloody randoms had like climbed up as well. So four of them got out in the end. Ooh, ladder. Him and Eric Clark. I love ladders. Yeah. Can't resist. As soon as I see one, just gotta climb. Just outside beating a rug, thought I'd go on that ladder. So. Do you know how he got a rope ladder? Like, I'd love to know if he, what he'd fashioned it out of in a movie where he cuts a bedsheet into strips and like weaves it together to make a rope ladder. I don't know. His own hair. He grew his own hair for 15 months and weaved it. Maybe. He cut the hair of every man in prison and weaved it together. So him and um, Eric Flower, they escaped. um, These other two randoms got away as well. Now, Biggs got out, fled to Brussels by boat. Uh, He wrote to his wife and his wife came to join him in Paris. Now, his wife had been having an affair with someone else. Because she was like, oh, he's got like 20 years, I don't know. She was pregnant. Oh, she already had two sons with Biggs. Just got an abortion. Dumped the guy, got an abortion, went to go meet Biggs. I mean, she clearly had made her choice. That guy must have had a strong pull. That can't be just for money. There must have been something about him. Because she had a life set up then, didn't she? She had obviously a guy. She could have had a family with him, it seems, if she's pregnant. So to leave it all, leave the country... I guess she is. That's like that's my husband. He must have been amazing. Yeah. Well, he's her husband, I guess. Just because you marry him doesn't make him amazing, does it? No. As you're going to find out. (laughs) A couple of months. 
Um, he had plastic surgery and changed his appearance as well. No! Yeah, so he totally... 60s plastic surgery, what would that even consist of? But also... They just lopped a bit off your face. If you're doing it not to look better, but to look different, what face would you choose? Yeah, would he just look like a... Yeah, because otherwise it'd just be like, oh, I've got a slightly thinner nose. If he's trying to change it so he's unrecognisable, yeah. they must—they might have just mashed him with a hammer. Like, would you Plastic try... Plastic surgery! <laughs> this will have to do! Would you be, like, trying to look cuter? Like, I don't know. You'd, you'd be trying to look like just a generic man with a face, wouldn't you? Like, you'd try and look as generic as possible. But in the catalogue of plastic surgery faces, I don't know. Did you end up looking like Liberace? Like, like I don't know. The cheek implant. Because you'd want to look as as unrecognisable as possible, wouldn't you? So you wouldn't want to look like plastic face face. Just look, just, I don't know. Maybe he was on a budget as well and he could only afford lip implants. <laughs> so it's like, he still looks like Ronnie Biggs, but he's been stung That's by so a bee. <laughs> so, <laughs> that can't be Ronnie. He's never been surprised in his life. And this man is completely bewildered. <laughs> his eyebrows up to his forehead. So... The family travelled to Australia and lived in Sydney for several months. Do they months. not monitor your phone calls? Like, you can just be planning an escape yeah. on the prison phones and no one cares. Put the yellow ribbon on the... Old oak tree. <laughs> yeah. You just got to have some... They, like, they come in. Like, you can have a visitor as well, can't you? The girls at school, so they've all recently started their periods. Yeah. And they have all these code words that they all share, together. they? We've like, all started our periods. Well, a few have, but we had to talk to all of them about it. So they've come up with all of these code words to talk about it in front of people. So, so like, I've got the red water. Apparently, Japan is the disabled toilet where they have to go and do it. So they'll be like, oh, I really want to go to Japan. It's quite a political <laughs> choice. Of... What? A tampon is called... Oh, God, what's a tampon? Is something like a ticket. So they're like, I need a ticket to get to Japan. Like they say oh all this God. stupid stuff. That's so, they could teach them, these prisoners, a few things about code words on the phone. And the boys are like, shit's going down in Japan. Like everyone wants to be there. I mean, nobody cares. Like you don't, the thing is that they don't understand. Like if you do have to go and change your tampon, you don't have to tell your friends. Yeah, right. That, I think that was one of the things I left out of the chat. <laughs> so he, Loved Australia, but he didn't... Wait, have... back up. I'm sorry. Period chat derailed it. When did he go to Australia? Right, they went to... They moved... To, the whole family moved to Australia, lived in Sydney, and then they moved to Adelaide, and they ran out of money, basically. So he'd spent a lot on his facial surgery, a lot on being smuggled out of the country. Obviously, that that takes money. So he had another child. Because <laughs> that's what you do when you... Yeah. The purse strings are tight. Um, the police carried on looking for Biggs, um, and he received an anonymous letter from someone saying they knew he was in Australia. So the, the, they said the prison, the police are on to you and that he should move. So he moved his family to Melbourne and then he started working construction until a newspaper reporter reported his real identity and said, oh, Ronnie Biggs is in the area, guys. What, what? And so he was like, well, obviously the police are going to come looking for me again. He fled, stayed with family and friends, and then he went to Brazil, but his family didn't go with him. So right. he, he was like, I'm Scarborough. He met a woman in Brazil and began dating her. Um, so so Charmaine's stuck in Australia with yeah. a load of kids. Yeah. 
Um, so soon his girlfriend was pregnant and he and his wife divorced in 1976. So she obviously wasn't down for that. She stayed in Australia. She sold her story to the magazines. She bought a house and she became an editor and journalist after putting herself through university. Oh, nice. So she did all right. She turned it around. She's pretty cool. She got rid of that guy and she was like, do you know what? I'm going to up level. And even better than that, she, well, not better than going to university. This is really ridiculous. But she was involved in the creation of the drama Mrs. Biggs about her life. She was played by Sheridan Smith. Biggs was tracked to Brazil. Police arrived to arrest him, but Brazilian law at the time, this is a weird thing. Basically, because he was going to be the parent of a Brazilian child, they said, we're not letting you have him. Oh, it can't. You can't be extradited. It makes him a Brazilian citizen. Basically. So. That's kind of sweet. Let's all do a murder and get a woman pregnant in Brazil. It's like an easy oh, yeah. way out. Like, you made it sound bad, but... <laughs> I mean, I guess they were like, he's not like, a murderer. True. Just keep your eye on your trains. Yeah. But he's like a known thief who's done that a lot of times. And he's run out of money. I probably wouldn't want him. I like the principle of it. Like, we don't want our children to be fatherless. That's adorable. Yeah, that's cute. We care about the children of Brazil. Even if they're thieves. So... In 1974, Biggs collaborated with Bruce Henry on a song called... Uh, the, on a song! It is on a song! In my head I was thinking he collaborated with, like, Sean Paul or something. Uh, no way! He did do a song! Yeah, so basically... Featuring Ronnie Biggs, you're joking. Basically, I mean, he couldn't work, so he was doing bits and bobs. So he he did Mailbag Blues, which is a jazz song. It's on YouTube. It's possibly the worst thing I've ever heard in my entire life. I made it through two minutes 31 if anyone can beat me like good on you because it is awful what's he do singing playing no like he must have been involved in the music but it's just a load of random noises over some backing music i hated it if you like jazz you might like it but no i'd like to see if you like it actually so biggs couldn't work um he was a known felon so to make money other than collaborating on music he hosted this is great he hosted barbecues for people like us tourists who were like if we went around brazil we'd totally do this he'd basically get let people come to his house he'd get them to pay to come to his house and he'd talk about the robbery that he'd done oh wow i know we would have done that i would go to that hendu Yes, Come please. round for a barbecue and I'll tell you a cool story. Have a barbecue story. with Ronnie Biggs. Yes. I would be there. Is he dead? Yeah. Fuck. I was uh, like, I'm doing it. Is he still there? So, amazing. I mean, if you went to that barbecue, please send us an email, slaughterthepodcast at gmail.com. I want to hear about it. A Biggs barbecue. But also he did t-shirts saying, I went to Rio and met Ronnie Biggs. Honest. He made his own t-shirt. I swear I did. <laughs> So, March 1981, Biggs was kidnapped by some ex-British soldiers who basically were like, we're going to be the ones who get Biggs. So, they took him from his home, got him on a boat, started sailing off, hoping to get him, basically, I think, eventually to British soil so he could be arrested. Right. The boat they used became stranded and they all had to be rescued by the Coast Guard. So they didn't get far. No. So there's a documentary about it. I haven't seen it. And it's, I don't know what it's called. But 
Uh, there's also a film called Prisoner of Rio about it as well, which is about this kidnap. I mean, it was co-written by Biggs himself. He is like an he's entrepreneur. Take, he's taken Any, the book. Anything that happens to him is that like, I can turn this around. Yeah. So basically, he was taken back to Brazil by the Coast Guard, and he was fine. Like they were just like let him go. They were like, you can't just have him. Uh, in 1997, the UK requested Brazil extradite Biggs, um, and it was rejected, and Biggs was basically told he had the right to live in Brazil for the rest of his life. So that's it. He's got away with robbery. Quite a big crime. He can carry on doing his barbecues forever. Yeah. That's in 1997. Until someone kidnaps him who's from the Navy, <laughs> then he's fucked. Yeah. In 2001... Biggs announced he was going to go back to the UK. Why? His son said that really he just wanted to walk into a normal English pub and buy a pint of bitter. And that was the reason he wanted to go back, that he was homesick. It's not worth it. And he was never going to experience that again. I mean, bitter's nice, but... It's pretty bitter by nature. It's not, like, that great. It's not not worth going to prison for. I mean, were they going to let him have a pub? drink before he i mean he knew he was gonna get arrested right the son of train driver jack mills was really angry about the fact that people were making light of his people like us were making light of his crime that's true i've already (laughs) forgiven him yeah right so he claimed his father never recovered from his injuries now his father did eventually die of something unrelated but he did say that he was always haunted by the fact that he was grabbed yeah grabbed well he wasn't the one who was grabbed but he was attacked on the train and obviously tied up and held hostage and he said that he never got over that he had post-traumatic stress and they did do something awful now i mean i'm not sure biggs was really that involved in that he was kind of like the tag along to be honest but he was pretty involved he planned an escape like yeah but he was in it he didn't plan the robbery so biggs had um, it's just so fantastical that it's hard to be mad yeah, it's like when one of the kids, like, they come to you and they're like, oh, so-and-so said something bad. And then when they tell you what it is, I'm like, that's so funny, I can't even be angry. <laughs> it's like if someone does something bad, but they're out there flaunting, telling people about it. Like, I don't know, you just kind of... Like, catch me if you can. Like, he did a lot of bad things, but that kid was kind of impressive. Yeah, like, if you're so fabulous with it, then you're just kind of like, eh. Nah. But... So just but, don't rob me. Yeah. Although you wouldn't, I've got nothing. No, I've got. I mean, I barely even need to lock my door. So Biggs went to prison. Um, he went to a British prison. So he, he did back. go back to England. Yeah, he went back for a pint. For a pint. In- go to Germany. <laughs> like it's on the way, and they do it pretty well. Yeah. Go to the Czech Republic. That's good too. Nothing like a British pint. That is something that he wasn't willing to sacrifice. So, Biggs was in prison. He had two strokes. This was... Sounds like he knew he was on the way out. Well, I mean, he'd been there a few years. He just wanted to get back to the NHS. (laughs) So, writers started writing about Biggs. And I found a book called Ronnie Biggs, The Inside Story, written by Mike Gray, who was... A little bit like our friend that we've looked at a couple of weeks ago. Incredibly sympathetic towards Ronnie Biggs. Um, I'm going to read you a little bit of this book. Ronnie Biggs is being treated like an animal. We have seen it! When will people wake up and realise that the police... Treated like an animal? He was sunning himself in Brazil for 20 years. All right. Um, When will the police... 
When will people wake up and realise that the police and lawmakers are not always right? But don't tut and do nothing. Do something. It may be you one day. Who does what? Rubs a train? I know, right? It's pretty specific. He escaped from prison. He was barely even locked up. (laughs) So then he starts talking about how Biggs is an old person in prison, the way he's being treated is appalling, um, being locked up, and that actually that the real problem is that people like paedophiles because they are just out there walking around. Do you think his facial surgery gave him puppy dog eyes or something? And, that, and that's why this guy's so sympathetic. It's because he's an old man now and he's like, oh, yeah. don't be mean. He's been to a barbecue. Yeah. You can't... I bet there was ketchup there. Loads of it. <laughs> so he, he talks about him being a good guy and all these other problems. And then he goes as far as to say this quote, I honestly think that every self-respecting citizen should be allowed to attack known nonces on site and be rewarded. He's got a different axe to grind. Don't bring Ronnie Biggs into this. Like, one, that's not relevant. And two, why do you want to go around smacking paedophiles? Like, you need to prove it first. Attack a nonce on site. That's assuming we can look and tell who's a nonce from looking. That's noncist. (laughs) They don't all look the same. He and his um, co-writer visited Biggs every month for eight years while he was in prison. So is he was okay to say? I've said it a lot now. I mean, I'm committed to the word nonce, but is it okay? I don't think we have to worry about offending people who are paedophiles massively. In 2007, Biggs was moved from Belmarsh Prison to Norwich Prison on compassionate grounds to be near a family. Then he appealed to leave prison and to die at home. Um, this was refused several times, but he was released eventually two days before his 80th birthday. Um, he's had these strokes. He was struggling. He was quite an old... I mean, he was a very old man by this age. But upon leaving prison, suddenly his health improved a lot. Now, a lot of people said that he's still taking the mick and he's just been putting this on for Although I imagine you would feel better being yeah. released from prison. It's a, I don't know. He took another four years to die. So he was living the life. In that time, he helped to write a book about the robbery. Like, he was... I mean, I don't know how well he was. He was in a care home at the end. But I kind of think at the end he did kind of get one over on the system a little bit. Where he had four years. I mean, I think they literally thought he had days. And he was like, eh, four years. I mean, you could do a degree in that time. He died in 2013 after living in a care home for a short time. And he died only hours before the series that he'd helped to work on about the great train robbery was broadcast on tv i think like we're over it now you've seen enough you lived it yeah yeah i don't think i don't think he was upset because he didn't see it it was just a little bit oh i thought you were like and the worst thing of all he never got to see the tv show (laughs) he knows what happened yeah he's got the spoilers so that's ronnie biggs thank you lucy sorry i need a wee Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Um, so mine is a murder this time it was a listener recommendation a while ago I love a listener recommendation and I just got around to doing it was it proper UK all the way mm, SARS no he is British have we run out of killers now no <laughs> he is British he was born in Scotland he moved across the Atlantic for a bit did some murders and then came back to England and did more murders okay. so he's definitely the UK is there like he's British and did murders in Britain. Yeah. Counts. Fine. So this story, uh, my main reference source, was one of my new favourite books, Killer Doctors, The Ultimate Betrayal, by Kenneth Gibson, who, if you remember Kenneth, he was very disparaging about John Bodkin Adams, particularly because of his weight and not so much the murders. Anyone called Kenneth is okay in my books is... An adorable name. He is a bit homophobic, though. Okay. But luckily, this murderer, Thomas Neil Cream, was a massive ladies' man, so Kenneth doesn't really have anything bad to say about him. Oh. So, like I said, Thomas Neil Cream is the murderer. So, it's okay if he's a murderer as long as he's not a gay boy. According to Kenneth, not me. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no. Kenneth, if you're listening, like, maybe just edit slightly educate yourself watch people's drag race you'll fall in love with people and open your heart to new things yeah bam bam so Thomas Neil Cream he was born in 1850 in Glasgow to William and Mary Cream they were a well off respectable family his childhood seems quite uneventful if anything they were supportive and loving and they eventually moved to Quebec where his father ran a shipbuilding and lumber company and Thomas initially also went into this industry um, for a different firm before, at the age of 22, he enrolled at the medical faculty at McGill College. So he was supported by his parents. They provided him with his own horse and carriage. Goodness. And he was known for being quite flash. He wore fine clothes, jewellery, proper ladies' man whilst at university. I used to hate those. But there was always one who had a... In first year, had a brand new car and all this stuff. I'm like, ugh, I hate you. Yeah. We all hate you. Yeah, Logan. So, yeah. So he was definitely a ladies' man, which is 19th century slang for a fuckboy, basically. Yeah. He wasn't a nice guy. So he's, like, sleeping around? Mm, yes. He has no respect for women. Okay. Whatsoever. He doesn't see them as anything but dick holes. Okay. So he did well at uni. Despite this, and he got a first with his thesis, which was about the effects of chloroform 
The effects of his dick on all the vaginas. I mean, I think that's... The effects of chloroform, that's weird. Isn't it? I said, I thought the same. I was like, that's a creepy subject. Although, uh, that's like, oh, I'm going to look at the effects of date rape drugs. It like, is. It's uh, like everything is important. They used it for anesthesia. So it was something being used a lot. So we obviously need to know the long-term effects of it, the short-term effects of it, if it's being so widely used. But there's something a little bit creepy about it. Yeah. I, think, I wouldn't trust a guy who's doing research on a date rape drug. Like that would always make me think. I know chloroform. Why do you want to be the expert on this? Well, at the time, it was the equivalent of that. Would yeah, that's creepy. Being a doctor is the perfect cover for any creepy hobbies Mm. you've got, isn't it? Yeah. If you have an interest in, they're always a bit weird anyway, aren't they? So, in 1876, he graduated as a doctor of medicine and a master of surgery. And a month after graduating, his lodging rooms caught on fire so he had insured his possessions for a thousand pounds they always told you when you moved into student housing you should get insurance for your belongings nobody ever did no but he had and um, so he insured his possessions for a thousand dollars which is the modern equivalent of around twenty thousand oh, dollars what did he have like the most i ever had was my computer that's the most expensive thing yeah. i owned at university I guess it's all his clothes and his horses. Well, yeah, he had jewellery, all sorts of things. But the insurance company weren't wholly convinced with his claim and they would only pay out $350. (laughs) I mean, it seems to be so soon after graduating, that seems like it's a plan. Like, what am I going to do straight away? Should I look for a job? No. Burn it all! (laughs) That's the answer. It's becoming increasingly clear that the answer to most problems in life can be solved with burn it all! There's my Mona Lisa painting just sitting on the side of my student accommodation. Like, I mean, because you can't say diamonds, they're not going to burn. He soon met Flora Eliza Brooks and they became very quickly engaged. But on the 9th of September in 1876, she became ill and it later came out that she was suffering from the after effects of chloroform poisoning. Worse, a dodgy abortion. Oh. So the doctor who performed it, as well as being careless with women's reproductive organs, he also struggled to keep his mouth shut, and he told Flora's father what had happened. Oh. Come on, confidentiality. He didn't care. He's like, yeah, I'm going to carry out an illegal abortion and then tell your dad. (laughs) That's weird. So her dad was a wealthy hotel owner in an area called Waterloo, which is about 70 miles away from... (laughs) It's about 70 miles away from Quebec. And so he immediately went to confront Thomas Cream and he demanded that you get married or I'm going to shoot you. An actual shotgun wedding. (laughs) So Cream agreed and two days after she had originally fallen ill, they were married in her father's hotel. I mean, she must have still been in incredible pain. He didn't wait for it to get better. He was like, if she's going to die, she's going to die married. It's happening. (laughs) So the next day, so as soon as they... So she's ill on the 9th. Two days later, married. She's obviously still going to be a right mess. The next day, Thomas leaves the country. What? Leaves her behind. Like, they're married now. His obligation's done. He heads to London to continue his studies. It just seems so extra. Why bother to get married? Just say they were... Just pretend. Tell people she was. She leaves the country the day before. But for her dad to be like, you must marry. Like, she's in pain. He's going to leave. If you're not bothered about him being around, you just want to be able to tell people that she's married. Lie. 
That's the yeah. easiest way to do things. And I think that's something that we could all benefit from knowing. Why lie when you can pay people to do exactly what you want? Like? Yeah, why lie when you can force someone to marry your daughter at gunpoint and then have him abandon her? But that's what happened. So Flora, unfortunately, died within a year of this. Aww. It was registered, the death, as dying from consumption. So TB. Some people say that it might have been of continuing effects from this abortion so other people suggest that it was like a slow possibly a, po- a slow poisoning but and tuberculosis was a cover whichever happened she had a really unfortunate and tragic life yeah. which thomas cream properly fucked up but his mourning wasn't very deep because Thomas contacted Flora's family only to demand that they pay the $1000 that was part of the marriage contract that he would receive on her death. But quite rightly, her family were not... They did pay him $200, though, to shut him up. So Cream continued to study medicine back in the UK, and on his second attempt, he passed his... I thought you'd already got a month, like, you'd passed. He'd passed it with Canadian qualifications. (laughs) Like, you're going to do this again, mate, before you get to... Before we let you loose on the Brits... We're going to have to make sure we upgrade this. Yeah. Well, he'd failed an exam in anatomy and physiology. No, Which, out of all the exams to do, you'd think that'd be the one you know. We're not asking you cures. We're not asking you, like, surgery methods. Just, what's this? And what's connected to what? (laughs) The head bone is connected to the blank bone. (laughs) Pick one. So he did pass, and he did this in Edinburgh. He then returned back to Canada and set up his own practice in London in Ontario. I mean, they didn't really think through the names when they started moving to Canada that this would be an issue because I had to keep rereading passages for so long because he, he did live in London in the UK. He lived in London in Ontario. I only live in cities called London. Like, if you, when you, well, they obviously sailed over and they thought, right, we're going to call this place London. No one back there is going to know. They're not <laughs> going to come here. They won't find out. We'll just this use is New it. South Wales. It will never cause any sort of issue. It's causing me an issue. Like, why come up with another name when you could just put new at the front? So he's got his own practice in Ontario. And in 1879, Kate Hutchinson Gardner's body was found in the toilet outside Thomas's surgery alongside a bottle of chloroform. His favourite, as we know. And there was an inquest during which Cream claimed that Kate had come to him seeking an abortion, but he denied any knowledge of what happened to her after she left. But the alleged father of the child had claimed that there was a plot, that he was being blackmailed by Cream, that if he didn't pay him, he would reveal the fact that she was having this abortion. Experts at the inquest testified that the girl couldn't have killed herself using chloroform, but there was evidence that a pad soaked in chloroform had been pressed against her face. Now, I did check this. You can die from chloroform. It can cause heart and respiration problems. Part of the reason they stopped using it as anesthesia is that people didn't always wake up. So you can die from it. And experts, I mean, Thomas was the person who wrote a first-class thesis on the use of chloroform. Perhaps that's where they're getting their information. (laughs) Let's consult the thesis. That's a long game scam. I'm going to write... No one ever dies from chloroform. Yeah, I'm going to write the facts that everyone will use about this drug and then use the drug. That's clever. It was all circumstantial evidence which pointed to cream, but the verdict was returned that it was death by chloroform administered by an unknown person. 
that's that then. No, we don't need to look any further. Tick, job done. Unknown person? Fine. So Cream possibly knew that it was about time to move on and he head for Chicago. So in August of 1879, where he set himself up as an abortionist, which was still illegal at the time. What? Why was he putting up his adverse then? He, well, he would... Chicago Chicago street. wasn't doing so well back then. He's it was a the, backstreet abortionist. Yeah. And he would hang out He would hang out with prostitutes. He would hang out with drug addicts. He wasn't setting himself up in a classy area now. He was going down into the slums and right. uh, getting his business off vulnerable people, basically. So the 20th of August, 1880, the body of another of Cream's patients, Mary Ann Faulkner, was found... Because a neighbour of a woman, Hattie Mack, who was a midwife that assisted Thomas with the abortions. So the midwife's neighbour tipped off the police. Right. So both Thomas Cream and Hattie Mack were charged with murder. So the neighbour was basically seeing women going in pregnant, coming out not pregnant, and said, something's going on here. This woman dead. I mean, you could probably hear it through the walls as well. I think Marianne had been found dead and she right. said she's been to visit them recently. Okay. So Hattie got some sort of deal and became a witness for the prosecution against Thomas Cream. She claimed that he'd performed upwards of 500 abortions and had asked her to destroy the evidence by... Burn it all! Burn everything! Burning down the house, which she hadn't. Cream stood trial. He was immaculately dressed... And the all-white male jury, like no he, surprise. Someone who looks that lovely could never have committed a crime. They chose to believe him over Hattie, who was a black woman. She wasn't spe- speaking particularly eloquently. There's some quotes from her. And um, she refused to repeat her statement when she was in court faced with him. So he was acquitted. So in December anyway. of that year, same year that he'd been tried with murder... In the December, another patient died from poisoning, a Miss Ellen Stack. And Cream had attempted to blackmail the pharmacist who'd filled out her prescription, but he was unsuccessful. They refused. But he didn't let that put him off. He would continue to try and blackmail people and send poison pen letters throughout his life. That was his second favourite thing after poisoning women. So Joseph Martin was a furrier, and he was originally the target of Cream's attention over an unpaid medical bill. But he then started a blackmail campaign, saying that unless Martin paid him the $20, he would tell people that he'd given his wife and children a venereal disease. I mean, forget the STI, just tell everyone that he's fucked his kids. Like, how else have they got this venereal disease? Like, I'm going to tell them you gave them chlamydia. Like, we're not interested in chlamydia, just say that they had sex. That's weird enough. That's the weirdest. Like, I don't mind who you have sex with, just don't pass on diseases. As a doctor, that's my opinion. So Cream was arrested for this blackmail in 1881, but he was released on bail, which was paid for by Mrs. Mary McClellan, who was the mother of Cream's new fiancé. So just before this, Cream had actually begun to have an affair with the wife of one of his patients... Daniel Stott, who was a 61-year-old epileptic. How old was his wife? His 33-year-old wife. She would visit Cream after picking up her husband's prescriptions, Mm. which were pills that Cream claimed would cure epilepsy. Mm. 
I mean, why go to the effort of training as a real doctor if you're just going to practice quackery anyway? Like, he's been and studied medicine a long time. Why are you going to just give fake pills? You could have just forged a certificate if that's what you wanted. Save the money. Save the effort. He's learned it all, and now he just doesn't care. He didn't pass everything first time anyway. True. So in June of 1881, the year that he would be arrested for the blackmail of Martin, Mrs. Stott had been there while Cream was adding white powder to her husband's medication. He then died within 15 minutes of taking it. But the death registries said it was an epileptic seizure. That's convenient. So, as well as banging his wife, though, Cream was also the beneficiary of Stott's life insurance. What? I still don't understand why people do this. Oh, I'll let my doc to be the better. No, that's not normal. Unless he distrusted his wife so much because she was younger, maybe thought she was a gold digger. He thought, right, well, I won't give you any life insurance money. I'll give it to my doctor. That way you won't try and bump me off. But he didn't anticipate. Like he must have had a friend. Apparently not. Oh, come on. How close are you to your doctor? I don't even know my doctor's name. No, me neither. So, Cream, so now he was with his wife on the sly, he had his life insurance money, but he still tried to milk it for more money by again That's enough. planning to accuse the pharmacists and sue them and blackmail them for saying that they had added strychnine to his medication. Like, if you've messed with the medication, don't start bringing up the medication and getting that looked at. That's the worst He plan. Throughout it, he's brazen. He always thinks there's not a chance he can be caught. So he wrote to the coroner requesting that the body would be exhumed and tested for strychnine. I mean, how would you even know? This guy's an epileptic. He's died. Why would like, oh, but should we test for this very specific drug? There's a lot of these doctory scientific types that make this mistake, I find. Like, we've seen this a few times already. They can't keep their mouth shut. They've done something yeah. clever and he wants people to know. Yeah. But it happened. They did exhume the body and Stott was found to have eight times the lethal dose of strychnine in his body. Cream was still on bail for the blackmail of Joseph Martin earlier, and so the district attorney then began to show an interest in him. So he tried to flee and was caught in Ontario as he was heading into as he was in Canada, and Mrs. McClellan this time refused to give him bail after realizing that Cream was a baddie and was repeating his pattern from before. He'd seduced her daughter, he'd impregnated her, given her abortion, and abandoned her. Seems to be his thing. So he went to trial where Mrs. Stott also became a witness for the prosecution, even though she'd been involved. They love giving women these deals. Why is she suddenly turning her back on him? So she doesn't get... So then she won't have to be charged with the murder too. Right. So she testified to seeing add the strychnine to the medication. Then the courts did the weirdest thing to demonstrate how lethal this drug was. It wasn't enough to they say... Them. They brought a dog in... <gasps> And they gave some strychnine to the dog and showed, look, he's dead now. That's horrible. I know. I'm assuming they did it in the courtroom. It says they gave some to a dog and saw that it died in minutes. I mean, you could just say, oh, by the way, people die within minutes of taking it. So if they've tested it on a dog, they must have brought it to show people. I don't have to have that level of evidence. Like, I believe you. It's fine. Too much science for me. Show me on a dog. (laughs) I mean, you couldn't do that in all cases. Like, do it with a dog. Like, sexual abuse. Well, bring in a dog and show me how it's done. (laughs) So, Mrs. McClellan then also testified that Cream had spoken of Stott's death before it had happened, and he was sentenced to life in prison. 
So he went to Joliet Prison and he got time off for good behaviour. He got his sentence reduced. How good are these people behaviour? Because this happens a lot. Apparently he was a model prisoner. He's done no more crimes, therefore I'm good. His family was quite well off and it's suggested that perhaps they were friends with the governor and they were able to put pressure on. But he was out within 10 years, which as a young man, he's, so he's still not that old by the time he's out. So on his return, he went to Canada. His father had died while he was in prison and had left him $16,000, wow. which amounts to about 350000 today. His friends back there remarked there was a change in him since he'd come back from prison and a change in his behaviour, and people were starting to call him insane. I mean, if he was put in solitary confinement, that's a possibility. We watched a documentary about solitary confinement today, and it was horrific. I'm against it. Good. Like, it's really bad. It is horrible. So what do you do if you're mad? You head for England! (laughs) So he arrived in Liverpool in the 1st of October, 1891, and headed straight for London, England. And eventually he settled in the Lambeth area, Lambeth Road, which Kenneth describes as being squalid and filthy slum. Bit harsh. Yeah, I mean, he's not the most tactful person. So Cream began his new life of sex, drugs and murder, He almost straight away. He's described as having a mania for sex and would show dirty pictures to anyone who would look. And he was constantly having conversations which would he'd turn to vulgarity how was he showing his day pictures because there's no mobile phones then it's not like he would just be carrying around pictures with him whip them out here's a here's a drawing of a some woman in the box so cream was regularly having sex with prostitutes and he was self-medicating with a carefully mixed cocktail of morphine cocaine and strychnine he just not one will do and he said he this was used as like an aphrodisiac it gave him stamina it gave him energy so on the 13th of October, he'd been there for two weeks, sex worker Ellen Donworth was killed of strychnine poisoning. She'd been found struggling to stand in the Waterloo Road and she was able to describe her assailant just before she died as being a cross-eyed man with a silk hat and a big bushy moustache. I mean, that's specific. That's not generic face. Yeah. She was taken to hospital but dead on arrival. It's said that Thomas Cream stood out in the area. He was taller and broader than the average man. He was cross-eyed. He had this huge moustache. He was obviously this loud American accent. People knew who he was. So they were pretty certain with the description that it was him. Cream then posed as a detective, O'Brien, and wrote to the coroner as a detective, offering to bring Ellen's killer to justice in exchange for a reward for money. What an anonymous letter! I can do no, it. No, not anonymous. He said he was. He said he was a detective. Right. He was saying, "I'm Detective O'Brien, and I will bring this killer to justice if you give me money. I know who it is." Just come round and tell me that's my face. So he didn't get any money because that's not how they operate. <laughs> but the twentieth of October, so only a week later, Matilda Clover was another lady of the night who was unfortunate enough to have an appointment with Thomas Cream. So later that night. Matilda's screams woke her friend and landlady of her lodgings in Lambeth Road and the two women just thought she was drunk and tried to assist her with cups of tea. I mean, she was screaming. It said that her head was between the wall and the bed head and that she was just in absolute agony. So they were like, quick, make her a brew. I mean, that might work. It might in some cases. I've come out of some 
dark moments with a cup of tea. I mean, this one didn't. A doctor was eventually called, but he didn't want to come in the night, so he arrived the next morning, but Matilda Clover died. Her death was misdiagnosed as being a heart failure due to alcohol poisoning. But Cream, again, couldn't allow his hard work to go unnoticed, so he made comments to his landlady's daughter that he needed her to deliver a letter to Lambeth Road because a girl had been poisoned there and he knew who had done it. It's these science types always giving it away. Like, I've got to let them know that they're wrong and that I did something good. So the girl was creeped out and said, no, take the letter yourself, you weirdo. The next woman to have an encounter with Cream was Mrs. Louisa Harris. She also went by the name Louisa Harvey, which was her lover's surname. And she had spent the night with Thomas at a hotel. He then asked to meet her again the following night and offered to bring some pills that would sort out the spots on her forehead. Oh, harsh. I know, I get you that you're being helpful, but the fact that you're pointing it out is... Yeah, I'd rather... And you already had sex with me, so what's your problem? It's like, oh, you know, this thing that you've got that's a problem, I can help fix that if you want. Just don't mention it. Uh, Louisa Harvey was obviously a bit more switched on, a bit more aware. She knew something was wrong. She agreed to meet him, but when he gave her the pills, she knew something was wrong. He was pressing her too much to take them straight away. So she did the thing where she, like, chucked them towards... Well, it says she threw them on the floor without him realising. I imagine it to be, like, throwing them towards her mouth, but over the shoulder. When you're like, whoop, there they go. It's like that thing, Joe, if I've got a cup of tea on the go... I have to leave the classroom for a moment and I come back in and I go to drink and I just look at all the kids' faces just to see if they're a little bit too keen for me to take a swig in case they spat in it. As if they're like, oh, she's going to drink the tea. Then I know something's up. But he asked to show it, see her hands and was satisfied and left her, assuming she was going to die. But she didn't. She was aware. So Cream continued to write his letters. His next target, he decided to threaten MP Fred Smith, who was the heir to WH Smith's. Oh. The stationery chain. Oh, there today. I bet some panda stickers. With, this was a plan that he tried a couple of times. None of them worked, but he obviously decided this was the way, even though it never worked. He wrote to him, claiming to be someone else. He said he was H.M. Bain. And he said, I'm going to expose you as the killer of Ellen Donworth unless you hire me as your lawyer to protect you. What? So I think you're a murderer. I'm going to I either think you're a murderer, but I want to get you off, or I'm going to lie and tell everyone you're a murderer unless you hire me. That's not how people get jobs. <laughs> but he said, what I want you to do is let me know that you want to hire me by putting a notice up in the WH Smith shop window on the Strand saying that you're going to hire me on Tuesday. I mean, that's a weird notice to put up anyway. I want to hire this lawyer. (laughs) Exactly. So he called the police, put the notice up, and the police had a stakeout, but Cream never showed up. And that's the end of that. So Cream then pretended to be someone called M. Malone and wrote to the royal physician, so the Queen's doctor, William Broadbent, demanding £2,500 or he would prove that William Broadbent had poisoned Matilda Clover, who at that point it was not common knowledge that she'd been poisoned. He said, the way I want you to do it is to post an ad in the Daily Chronicle newspaper letting me know that... I mean, this is getting so You want to hire me. So no more notice in the window. Just post it in the newspaper. So he did. This doctor had to post an ad in the newspaper saying, I want to hire M. Malone. 
And the police waited. Nothing. No one came to meet him. So 1892. So he's moving fast. This is only one year after he's been out of prison. He sailed back to Canada and he was an absolute mess. He was using alcohol to help with his morphine withdrawal. So on that long boat journey, it was just horrendous. He met a guy named John McCulloch there and they became friends at first, but he soon grew tired with him boasting about sleeping with so so many sex workers three a night saying women are disposable. He hated it. And then he eventually would sail to England from Canada just to be a witness at Cream's trial. Oh, you proper hated it. He did. He was one of those where he started talking at a bar and instantly regretted it because now he's stuck on a ship with this guy that is absolutely disgusting. I think it's like when we were in America and um, you were like, this guy seems all right, we'll invite him on a night out. And I was instantly like, this guy's going to be really tiresome. You were right. And I was always right. You were right every time. Always. So when he got to Quebec, he stocked up on strychnine and also decided that while he was there, he would print and distribute 500 leaflets claiming that Ellen Donworth's killer was living in the area. Just announcing his arrival, basically. It's like he wanted to be... He wanted to do something so extravagant and still not get caught. He thought he was invincible. He's like, I can distribute leaflets claiming that her killer's here and no one can touch me. Uh, The more he did these things, the more he felt like he was untouchable. So Cream then returned to London, where he continued to search for victims. Alice March and Emma Shrivel. I think that's it. I hope I've copied it down right. I didn't say it out loud before... She's not really writing to us, is she? No. But they were up from Brighton and were selling themselves on the street. They were working as sex workers too. Cream met them and they took him back to their lodgings where he gave them three capsules each. And later that night, again, their screams of pain brought attention from their landlady and people. The police followed them to the hospital and they tried to question Emma as she was there dying in the hospital. She managed to get out a description of Thomas Cream. Alice was dead when she arrived. I can't believe I've never heard of this guy. I mean, this is a lot of sex workers being killed. The thing is, it's around the same time as Jack the Ripper, so everyone just focuses on that. It's the yeah. same sort of time period. I mean, Cream would not be happy This is that. creepier, I think. This is more interesting than, yeah, I slashed him in the throat. Done. Yeah, and nobody knows who. But, I mean, I don't think you... It's like if, like... You do something amazing, but someone dies on that day in the newspaper and you're not going to get a mention. Like, I don't think Cream would be happy about it. Oh, Cream wouldn't be happy about it. No, he's doing his best to get notoriety. Nobody knows him. Some people know. My listener recommendation knew him. Maybe yeah, it's just you. Everyone's cool and not you. Maybe everyone's talking about Cream and I'm just not invited. Everyone's like, oh my God, why are they even covering Cream? We know everything about him. Maybe. So, during this time when he was drugging, sexing, killing. He'd managed to also meet, date, and propose to a girl, Laura Sabatini. And so she became his fiance. He managed to hold down that relationship too. I mean, he's not working though. He's got a lot of ass to fill. He's working as an abortionist. He's got a packed schedule. Um, So he began to enlist her to help with his schemes. His letter writing, getting her to copy out letters and send things. According to her court statements, originally she questioned it and then thought, oh well, I'll do it anyway. So she would write letters under his new favourite alias, W.H. Murray. 
and they wrote some particular letters to the father who, who of a young man that lived in the Lambeth area, Walter Harper, and they demanded money from him saying that unless you pay us, we're going to tell people that Walter killed Alice and Emma. So suspicion was beginning to be aroused now. This was the first sex worker dies. People are like, okay, this happens. Matilda had died, but they didn't know that it was a poisoning. And then these girls. So the police are starting to come on. Something's going on in this very small yeah. radius. I mean, it's, it's all in Lambert. Yeah. So we Around that area. Like, yeah. So the police began to question the sex workers in the area. And one of these girls, Lucy Rose, who had been with Ellen Donworth as she died, told of the story of this description of um, Thomas Cream that she knew. They also exhumed Matilda Clover, finally, and discovered that she had died of strychnine poisoning. Thomas became a suspect, and they started to follow him. He didn't really care. He knew he was being followed. He had a friend on the police force, and he said... I think people are following me. Uh, but he didn't stop. He tried to poison Violet Beverly, but she as well... I mean, there was a lot of sex workers being killed around the area. They're being vigilant now. He, so he gave her pills, and she again threw them away, like pretended to take them. Good. I mean, he's not very observant. That's where the cross eyes come in and helpful. They're just... Because you can't really be that subtle at throwing pills away when you're trying to show you're putting <laughs> them in your mouth. They must have been doing the throw over the shoulder. And he was like, yep, okay. These white pills just falling to the floor. And he was like, my job here is done. <laughs> so she gave a really good description to the police. So then they had enough evidence to go and search his lodgings. So while they were there, they were able to take letters and compare the handwriting on those letters to the ones that Walter Harper's dad was receiving and the other blackmail letters. So they arrested him on the 3rd of June, but they only held him on charges of blackmail originally while they had the inquest into the death of Matilda Clover. Louisa Harvey, the original escapee with the spotty forehead, she was oh, one of the key witnesses. Her. That's a defining feature. Oh, bless her. I'm just saying it so you can remember. I'm not going to put it on her eulogy. <laughs> so she was one of the key witnesses. But Thomas's strategy was to just say absolutely nothing, but literal... I'm not going to say a word. He wouldn't say his name when they asked him. He wouldn't repeat the oath when they asked him. He would say nothing, which didn't help because they were like, you're being a dick now. Just say the oath. So he was found guilty after 20 minutes. But that was just the inquest. So then they had to have the actual charging and the trial. So they charged him with four murders and one attempted murder. But only Matilda Clover's murder actually proceeded. But the judge ruled that evidence from the other murders could be admitted, partly to establish a pattern and things like that. Yeah. Cream was not allowed to speak at this trial, and he had no defence witnesses to bring. But despite this, he still believed that there was no way he was going to be found guilty, and reportedly he sang and danced on his way back to his cell after closing arguments, convinced he was going to be acquitted. He just didn't have any... There was no possible scenario in his head in which he'd be guilty. It literally took the jury 10 minutes to find him guilty after this trial, and he was immediately sentenced to death. So on the 15th of November, 1892, between four and 5,000 people went to Newgate Prison to watch him hang. 
Afterwards, his clothes were sold to Madame Tussauds for £200, where his waxwork dressed in his clothes was displayed for 70 years. What? So in the 1960s, you could go and see his actual clothes in Madame Tussauds. No way. Now, there's a bit of notoriety even more. Reportedly, as he was about to be hung, the very last words he said were, I am Jack the... So lots of people believe that he was saying, I am Jack the Ripper. And the people have written, this lady has written a book called I Am Jack. And she's convinced that he is Jack the Ripper. Sounds like the kind of thing you'd want to take credit for, though. Well, he is... It uh, doesn't fit the way he killed people. It doesn't fit the way he killed people. At the time that a lot of the Ripper murders took place was when he was in prison in Chicago. So that, but then... But this, the woman who wrote the book claims that they've got the dates wrong. But how wrong can you get it? Because it takes weeks to sail in the 1800s <laughs> from England to Chicago. So, well, not, you can't even sail right up to Chicago. I don't know where it is exactly. I don't know if I'm on the coast. But so they must have got the dates months out to be able to yeah. be that wrong. I mean, trusting something that this guy has said as a piece of evidence is never going to be a good thing because he talked to a lot of gobbledygook. And also, I mean, people think H.H. Holmes is Jack the Ripper, but... I think it would just be, if you're going to be killed, use your last words to fuck things up. Like, I think he was having a laugh right at the end. Yeah. One man on a little documentary I watched, it was, I can't even call it a documentary, it was like a school group project that some people had put on YouTube, where they spoke at the beginning and then put in some clips from another documentary. (laughs) And a man on the clip of the documentary said, of course it's not the Ripper. The most common phrase he's going to be saying is, I am Jack the Lad, obviously. Yeah. Like, yes, Jack the Lad is a phrase. That's my closing phrase. But nobody says, I am Jack the Lad. You are a Jack the Lad. You're not yeah. Jack. Jack the Lad isn't a person. It's a stereotype. My personal theory is that he was possibly saying, I am Jack of all traits. <laughs> Which he clearly is. Abortionist. Lover. Sailor. I don't know. (laughs) Actually, maybe not. He's got one trade. It's abortion. Yeah. Okay, so we've had a couple of questions from people who are donating to us on Patreon. Um, Thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. So first one comes from Clay. Hey, Clay. (laughs) And Clay said... Uh, who is your favourite serial killer and why? Um, see, doing the podcast, I think almost every time I hear a new story, I'm like, this one's amazing. So I think I really enjoyed doing Thomas Neil Crean this episode. I love that he not only does a murder, but then is really intensely writing letters to try and get caught. I find like the bizarreness of it I enjoyed. Yeah. I also found. Um, Graham Young, the teacup poisoner, I really I liked his too because it just again it's the brazen attitude. Like I'm going to poison my entire family really slowly and make notes. I just yeah. love they, I found those really interesting. So I wouldn't have said them originally, but since doing them, and I also really enjoy it. Not a serial killer, but I loved the Robert Hendy Freeguard episode, the Conman. Again, it's those absolute taking things to the nth degree like i'm not just gonna tell you a little lie i'm gonna live this lie no matter what (laughs) i mean i think people that follow their dreams that's basically what i'm saying follow your dreams 
no matter what they are no matter what they are i hate when there there's like someone on a reality tv show and they're like you're not gonna be working back in greg's tomorrow yes they're yes they are like, not everyone's gonna win the show and if, if they win the show their lives are gonna be exactly the same like some people shouldn't be following their dreams they should be ad- adapting their dreams i think we just did that's the difference i'm the optimist you're the pessimist i'm like follow your dreams poison everyone I'm like, and you're yeah, like you know. go back to greg's <laughs> yeah basically i think if i was gonna say favorite of the, of the ones we've looked at because obviously i know a bit more about them than one we haven't looked at i, I quite enjoyed looking at fred and rose west because i think because it's a couple as well and it, they're just so obscure and um they were proper filthy weren't they yeah proper day but um, I kind of wish we could redo that because I feel like we did that before we hit our prime a little bit. Um, so I wouldn't say it's my favourite episode, but I think it was a really interesting one to look at. I also really enjoyed um, Jeremy Bamber, but I guess that's more of a massacre. Yeah. Do you have a favourite non-one that we've done? Um, no. <laughs> we only like what we do. Self-promote, always. Right. The next question comes from josh and he wants to ask us if we could cover any murderer not just the uk where would we do because we are kind of a little bit limited that sometimes we see one and we're like oh they're america or they're australia it's tricky because it's a lot of the american ones that got me into it yeah but then also there is such a wealth of good true crime podcasts out at the minute that a lot of the ones that I like have been done a lot. So I probably wouldn't do them because they've been done... I don't know what else I could bring to it. Yeah. But you got to love Ed Gein. Yeah, I love Ed Gein. He's the, he's the numero uno. Because it's such a weird story. And, and I think it's also the fact that he's so... Almost I imagine him to be quite childlike but so massive. He's one in a million. And he's a mummy's boy there's so much there but he's creepy like if I was gonna make I'm gonna change the question if I was gonna make a musical from a murder I'd make it about Ed Gein yeah we've already discussed the possibility of producing a burlesque show where we basically strip a a woman's skin off ourselves I think we're like we wear body suits we're revealing our secrets now oh shit that, I, I want to know if there's like a market for it. Do you want to see me strip out of a skin suit? Because I'll do it for well, money. Rather than a live talk. With clothes underneath. There's no nakedness. I'll be naked on top and then I strip off the nakedness and I'm wearing clothes underneath. It's reverse stripping. Yeah. That's what I'm doing. Do, is this something that you want? People of the world. <laughs> I think that went well. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I'm not sure that we gave you a satisfying answer to those questions, but I really appreciate you donating in order to get those questions. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, if you want to support the podcast, you can uh, rate. Rate us, review us. Please continue to review. Um, it's really imp- Or rate us. Uh, it's really important as it really does help other people find us. So just taking that two seconds would really, really help us out if you do enjoy the podcast. If you want to join Patreon too, you can patreon.com slash slaughter the pod there's different levels you can donate just one dollar a month if you like and there's various different rewards um for whatever level you subscribe to or just tell a friend about the podcast that would be fabulous um 
join us on social media at slaughter the pod on twitter or you can search for s apostrophe laughter on facebook and we should come up you can friend us and i'll add you to the group or if you had find the group yourself just ask to be a member there's some great discussions going on in there planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.